0: All right, good evening, buddy. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer. Coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power on nights and weekends. We're not just in Orange County, but L.A. County, San Diego County, all the way up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear the show on any device as it airs. And, of course, all these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com and Apple Podcasts. Now, I usually try to introduce the main man of the show at this juncture. His name is Richard Musio, CPA extraordinaire, family office expert, advising several high-net-worth families, also an accomplished marathon runner, author, lecturer, and philanthropist. However, Richard has a flat tire and uh, will not be able to do the show with me today. So uh, it is just going to be myself and our illustrious guest. Uh, If you never heard the name Fred Friendly, you're probably too young. Um, Anybody who knows anything about the television in its infancy and, and legends in in uh, TV news, uh, network nationwide, Fred Friendly was a giant, uh, very accomplished in his own right. And he had a, had a family, and he also had a son named Andy. And Andy, quite the legendary producer, promoter, pr- uh, and um, programmer and executive in his own right, um, worked with many of the biggest names in, in news and entertainment, and even some in sports. And he wrote, he's just written a book called Willing to be Lucky. And we're lucky to have him on the line. Andy Friendly, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks, Joe. Great to be here. What did, uh, who gave Richard the day off? <laughs>
0: His car gave him the day off, I guess. So, but let's, all right, we'll give him a pat, Yeah, let's hope it gets By the on. way, congrats,
1: if I can say, on your uh, major haul at the San Diego Press Awards last night. And I read about that. And congratulations. Oh, th- much deserved.
0: Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, it's once a year. It's the 44th annual. They're all judging another city, so there's no local politics involved. a different city every year, kind of like the Emmys, which you know something about.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, much deserved. Yeah. And, by the way, I love the name of your program, and, and that I assume is derived from the great Jack Benny line. You got about. it.
0: You absolutely have it. Of course, it was money—your money or your life—and uh, of course, and I just uh, modified that for your money and your life. And this show is about your life and your money, and, and money is in quotes. Money is your health. You know, money is a lot of things. It's uh, you know, it's whatever makes you happy. Your your hobbies, whatever, right?
1: Yeah, and what was the great line that Benny said? Uh, he was held up by, and, as I recall, the joke went something like, and you can do it better I can than probably,
0: I can tell you. He was, yeah,
1: russ,
0: he's,
2: he's, he was right. mugged,
1: and, a, and the mugger said, hey, your your money or your life, pal. And,
0: and Jack, Benny, he goes, famously well,
1: I'm, penurious, he, said, hold I'm th- on, I'm thinking. I'm th- something like
0: he that. He said, I'm thinking it over. But, of course, he <laughs> yeah, had one of those exactly. notorious pauses. And, uh, or infamous pauses. And by the way, he started out in in radio as a lot of great stars of yesteryear, Milton Burrell, who's in your book (laughs) with some funny stories. A lot of those guys all started in radio because there was no TV prior. You know, your dad must have started in radio, right?
1: Yes, he did. He started in radio in Providence, Rhode Island as a young man. Okay. I did a. a little biography series called Footprints in the Sands of Time, <laughs> where he would do five-minute biographies of, of famous people, from entertainers to generals.
0: Well, I do the same thing. I just do an hour worth. Of. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
1: And by the way, I love your sign on, which reminds me. Uh, it invokes to me the great Jerry Dunphy, who used to open all his uh, local newscasts. For those who are old enough to remember. From the desert to the sea to all of Southern California. Yeah. A good evening.
0: Well, that's true, and of course now it's global. But uh, the signal uh, th- we've got a great signal here, KFMB, and it, it does it does increase from five thousand watts to fifty thousand watts. A lot of people don't know the difference between AM and FM. FM, it's a static signal, twenty four seven. A.M. Yeah, uh, when the sun goes down during the week and all and all weekend long, it goes to fifty thousand watts, which is the most allowed by the FCC. But that's more information than we need to know. But it does get up to um, it does get up to San Francisco and all the way up to Seattle uh, on, during those um, increased peaks. Well, we allergy. we
1: listen to you here regularly on Saturday night. Oh,
0: very cool, very cool. So, um, Andy, your your book is wonderful. It's titled mm-hmm. "Willing to Be Lucky: Adventures in Life and Television." It really is your your memoir and you've got some great testimonials on here from uh, ranging from Michael Strahan and the forward by Tracy Ullman. and uh we're going to get you down here for a book signing in November I've uh, we're working on that so not right. <laughs> but wait. Uh, yeah um god what I mean look you I I love Johnny Carson as a kid too you grew up mostly on the east coast your dad got into to, to into television and uh your mom was first I think though wasn't she she
1: Well, my mom worked with my dad in the early days of their struggling uh, careers in Providence and then a little bit uh, later in New York. Mm -hmm. She was a researcher uh, at Time Life, and she's a very talented artist. Mm -hmm. And she worked with my dad developing the early uh, record albums that they did with Edward R. Murrow, ah. which were called I Can Hear It Now, which were the forerunners to I Can See It Now, which was the first right. uh, television Network. documentary series on CBS that yeah. my dad and Ed Murrow did together.
0: So his, your dad and your mom coupling with Murrow, that kind of, uh, that launched everything pretty much, right?
1: Yeah, oh. they wanted, They my dad had the idea to record on audio for radio the g- great seminal moments in history going back uh, in the 20th century to World War One and of course World War Two, through the Depression and everything else. And mm. they were struggling and could barely pay the rent in New-, in New York, but came up with this idea and pitched the idea through an agent named Jab Good, who was a famous TV radio agent who was Murrow's agent to Ed Murrow. Mm -hmm. And Murrow liked the idea, liked my dad's energy at age 27. And he could see that my dad could write. And they went to CBS with it. And CBS Records and Goddard Liebertson, who was the head of it, uh, said, yes, let's do do an album. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they were able to do it was because there was a musician strike going on at the time, (laughs) and there was nothing going on in the (laughs) studios at CBS Records, at Columbia Records. And so they gave it a try, and with Murrow's prestige and wonderful voice and writing skills, along with my dad's and my mom's, they were able to do an album, and Mm -hmm. that was the first real Money that my dad had made it wasn 't a lot, but it was enough to to pay the rent and enable them to go ahead and have a family and uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they they then went on to do two or three more albums with Murrow mm-hmm. and it was only because of that musician strike that they were able to do it, but they yeah. became very successful. Uh, my dad used to say that they put my brother and sister and I through college and and more importantly, it led to the partnership with Edward R. Murrow and Fred Friendly, which then moved to television. and yeah. became a I think, pretty famous partnership, yeah. and they pioneered the television documentary, really, and took yeah. on I think, famous
0: Tell me if I'm wrong, topics. but uh, but uh, I'm a good friend of Bill Marks, who's the son of Harpo Marks, and I think one of the very first Murrow nationwide remote uh, live pickups was at the— uh, his home in Palm Springs with Harpo Marx, and I don't know if... Uh,
1: that was probably on Person to Person, which was a show that yeah. Ed did, Morrow did for CBS. Yeah. My dad was not involved in that okay. one, but that was probably what he was best known for at the time, yeah. between you and me. My my dad wasn't thrilled about that show. He thought it was... Too um, fluff, Too much
0: fluff. <laughs>
2: but
1: beneath, Ed, yeah. beneath Ed's uh, stature as a newsman and a journalist, to be interviewing the celebrities and stuff, but but in retrospect, I think my dad came to accept it and it was fine in, in the same sense that... Mike Wallace or Barbara Walters interview celebrities, but yep. they also do serious topics. Sure, as
0: well. we've sure blended news and entertainment these days, maybe a little too much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yes. in any case, that happens. Um, but gosh, you know what a legendary career, and then your dad ultimately became president of CBS uh, News, right? With the, all the greats, Walter Cronkite and all the uh, the great people back then, right?
1: He did, and and he was he was not really suited to that role as an executive. He he was a real writer producer of documentaries, and he later became a great educator and a teacher, and went on to do uh, the series for PBS, The Media and Society, mm-hmm. where he did those Socratic dialogues that still air on PBS, where he'd pull together. Supreme Court justices and yeah. anchors like Dan Rather and Ted Koppel, and, did
2: he, and work, uh, did he? he had
1: these Harvard law professors
2: yeah.
1: grilling them and putting them in such an uncomfortable moral dilemma <laughs> that they, they all broke out sweating, guys like Mike Wallace, who was... The guy who made other people sweat, yeah, sweating about, like a how about that? Sweating like, you know, Mel Gibson at a bar mitzvah. But anyway, yeah. Dad was good at producing and that was what he was good at. Good. And he, when he became president of CBS News, it was very short lived and he left uh he yeah, was very I, frustrated. I wanna because, tell
0: I wanna tell that story. We've got to take a little break, we'll come right back with Andy Friendly, legendary producer, programming and T V executive writer right for this. Hang on. Right, we are back with Andy Friendly, legendary producer, programming, TV executive. You recognize that song, don't you, Andy? You put that show on the air, right?
1: Yes, sir. <laughs> my brother, my brother Michael, wrote that. Wrote the, the theme which you just played.
0: Absolutely, entertainment. And it was tonight. an
1: interesting story. If you got two seconds, I'll you, tell it to you. Go for we it. We were we came in and uh, after the pilot for the Entertainment I was done in the in the winter of 1981 by Jack Haley Jr. and Paramount and Telerep and their partners. I came in after the pilot to produce the series which was going on six nights a week in the fall of 1981. First time a program like that had ever been done, six days a week, by satellite, fed out to stations that in those days didn't have Earth stations, most of them, to Mm -hmm. even pick up a satellite signal, so we had to buy Earth stations for many of the stations. (laughs) But in any case, We built uh, an infrastructure and bureaus and hired hundreds of people and and put this first-of-its-kind program about entertainment news on the air six nights a week like a a real newscast, but we needed a new theme. We weren't happy with the theme Mm -hmm. from the pilot. I asked Barry Diller and Michael Eisner and Rich Frank, my bosses at Paramount, if I could bring in my... My brother, Michael Mark, my brother, a year or two older than me, mm-hmm. who was working on Broadway as a musical director on, on I Love My Wife, to compete with the established uh, people like Henry Mancini and Mike Post, who, of course, does everything from Law & Order to Hill Street Blues and all the great shows.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Diller and Eisner kind of said, OK, you can give it a try if you want, but th- he's never going to get it. It's going to be one of our guys who do our big movies. and Mancini, of course, did all the major films, and Mike. Post. But Michael, my brother, came up with those notes. Uh-huh. You know, those five or six famous notes, yeah. and do 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 do. Singing, but I mean, it just was the best theme for what we were trying to do. We brought it in the studio with a hundred musicians, and we we made it the theme for the show. And now, thirty six years later, every time that thing plays, he gets a, a little check, a which nice royalty. Uh, yeah. I always say to him, "Good." Gig, <laughs> you may recall the uh, the theme for the Tonight Show by Paul Anka. And some, some of course, like the greatest story of all of those. I think is the two notes that Mike Post wrote for Law and Order. You know, which play incessantly in reruns. Dun dun. <laughs> and those two notes have generated tens of millions. But Michael's done very well with Entertainment Tonight.
0: Isn't that something? Very
1: happy for him.
0: Yeah, outstanding. So anyway, getting back to your dad and the reason he left CBS News, he was a man of principle. And maybe you can tell that story uh, because it's very uh, compelling.
1: Well, it had built up, as I mentioned in the last segment, he he was not really suited to be an executive or administrator. And the, the role of president of CBS News really wasn't for him. He was a a fighter, and he was—he uh, liked to produce, and he was a man of great principle. And mm-hmm. so he kind of chafed at the bit and didn't didn't really belong in that job. And he was the first to admit it. But he left in a very famous protest in 1966 when the network refused to carry the live Senate hearings on Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That were determinative of whether we were going to stay in the war, escalate, uh, and continue to commit troops. It was a very important uh, time in our country and a debate in the Senate. And to that point, CBS News would break into daytime coverage, which was primarily reruns of shows like I Love Lucy to Mm -hmm. carry important Senate hearings like that on such a critical issue. Things had changed at CBS, and the powers that be uh refused to allow Dad and CBS News to break into a, actually a fourth rerun of I Love Lucy and the Real McCoys to carry the hearings. And my dad, in a famous scene uh, in his book, and that we recount all the family, walked into Bill Paley's office and demanded that they, they be able to do it, and that the news division needed, as had been in the case in the past, in the Murrow days, and cronkite to cut in when they felt that the public needed to know something this important and paley and his team refused and mm-hmm. my dad resigned the presidency of cbs news over that which became a headline story on the front page of the new york times and the washington post the next day And it was a matter of principle. Um, One little anecdote that I put in the Mm -hmm.
2: book—I'm waiting for it—kind of funny is (laughs) that when he
1: stormed out of Paley's office (laughs) after making his protest, he unfortunately walked out into what he thought was the hallway, but it was Paley's private bathroom. So (laughs) so, he must have been upset. He was upset. he sheepishly re-emerged and then went out the proper door.
0: It kind of reminds me when, remember when President George W. Bush was in China, I think, and he was he had finished the speech and he was walking off the uh, the set there and he goes to the door to his right and he goes to pull on the door and it's locked.
1: It wouldn't and, open. Yeah. I remember seeing that because <laughs> Letterman and, used to play that clip constantly.
0: And he looked like Johnny Carson with that take he did <laughs> yeah. into the camera. I go, this is, cla-. and then of course he walked around the podium and back off the stage, but you couldn't script that any better, but that's what it kind of yeah. Was. You can't make this
1: stuff up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it but has the, the advantage point was of being
1: my true. dad did yeah. something you know out of principle, and and that yeah. was really did signal a change yeah. um, in the way the networks allocated time to important issues in the news and and how much they covered live. Of course, they covered it later on the nightly news, yeah. but in a two minute clip. But those days. You know, things change and absolutely. Model, you know, economic models change. Yeah, and I wanted it, to talk to a little, different time.
0: Yeah, we'll get into that because back in those days, the three major networks were all independently owned and operated. They were competing directly head to head, and uh, you know, not owned by a larger conglomerate or corporation. And of course, today uh, that has changed. But uh, they had a lot of power back then, and there were only three major networks. And then, of course, the public TV came along in the middle of middle of the '60s, but. Uh, boy, you talk about getting ratings and share points back then. You know, you can't do that uh, today because, uh, obviously, it's uh, supply and demand, right? I mean, three stations
2: versus. Well, that's right.
1: And, you know, of course, now with the advent of all the cable networks, which mm-hmm. happened a while ago, that that hearing would have been covered on CNN and on other C- networks.
0: C-SPAN, of course, C-SPAN, sure.
1: Yeah, and C-SPAN, mm-hmm. and, but, and but CNN would have probably carried it, at least part of it live, and MSNBC and, and Fox News and all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the good news is that today, if you want to find that, that kind of coverage and want to watch those hearings, you can. But back then, it was, as you say, it was a different Different business. Mm-hmm. William Paley owned CBS, Sarnoff's owned NBC, and then RCA. But yeah. there was much more of an accommodation and an awareness of the public interest, and the airways, of course, were always meant to be in the public interest, and news divisions were sacrosanct in yeah. their ability and their role yeah. to provide that kind of coverage. Yeah. And it was never questioned, but in the mid 60s, after about 15 years of television, things began to change, and yeah. economics ruled the
0: day. Yeah. Well, of course, you were, uh, focal, you were focused on a lot of that change yourself and had quite an illustrious career, and I, I do want to get into that quite a bit. I, uh, just for the benefit of the audience, uh, you went to school. On, uh, I know you went to high school on the East Coast in a nice boarding school and then Occidental uh, for a couple of years like President Obama did, and then you wound up at USC's uh, film school, correct? Correct. And, uh, and then after that, you're, uh, you started working for NBC in writing news on the East Coast, right?
1: That's correct. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to work as a film director, but unfortunately, uh, <laughs> and all of us who got into the film school thought we were pretty hot stuff. Because uh, we were making little student films, uh-huh. um, the advent of, of home video, we could shoot stuff on reel to reel video, half inch black and white films, and we were pretty <laughs> good. But then yeah. when we got to film school, which was a tough school to get into, um, we learned very quickly that there are some people uh, who were significantly more talented than yeah. we were at directing. We all showed our first student films, these five minute assignments black and white, no sound, and Mm -hmm. I did one about a DJ like you who did a a show with a pet monkey on (laughs) KMET radio, and I thought it was pretty cool, and everyone else in our class showed their films at the screening, the big Uh screening with all the professors and hundreds of people there, and we were all proud, and then there was this guy sitting next to me, and this is a true story, has the added advantage of being true. He was the classic nerd with a Band-Aid around his glasses, five Mm -hmm. pens in his pocket and his his shirt. (laughs) And he made a film about an elevator in black and white, no sound, and the inner workings of an elevator in a building in Chicago he grew up with. His name was Robert Zemeckis. (laughs) And very quickly after the screening of that film, the rest of the class realized maybe we should go into producing. Yeah, exactly. And leave the directing to and the, I, the real I wanna, genius.
0: And that's on YouTube, and I watch it after reading your book, and it is uh, it is brilliant. So, But anyway, we got to take a little break. We're going to come back with Andy Friendly, legendary producer in news and entertainment and television, right after this. Hang on. We're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life, and this is the time where Richard likes to thank our sponsors, and we'll have some more awards next week, Richard. That's
3: what I heard, October yeah. 24th, Absol- Press Club Award. Absolutely, we're up again. We, well, we couldn't win those without our great roster of sponsors. At the top of the list, UBS with Mr. Michael Coronta. You talk about the who's who of San Diego. This is the list coming right up, okay? We have a couple of CPAs on our list. We love them so much. More traditional CPAs up in San Marcos, Polito Epic, Tax returns, financial statements, more traditional services, and then more specialized, Jason Kruger's great CFO service company, Signature Analytics, for companies that are rapidly growing and need that CFO service. Also, our great friend, Joel Grushkin, Cost Segregation Initiative, is helping real estate owners to improve their cash flow. Now, if you need a place to put all this money our sponsors are making, how about Mechanics Bank? Great niche market bank run by Sean Puckett in terms of the UTC region serving wealthy families, families in the real estate business. Again, Mechanics Bank, formerly known as California Republic Bank, led by Sean Puckett in terms of the San Diego region. Also, Hub International Employee Benefits. Always in the news, especially given what Donald Trump did, getting rid of the ACA, I think. Nobody knows. We'll see what the courts say. But Neil Staley with Hub International, if you need some help with your employee benefits. Also, my dear friend Tony Lombardi, the LG Experience and the Lombardi Group, Helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs, the CPA's very best clients. Speaking of wealth advisory, you we also have Paul Hines. Paul, of course, is the CEO of Hearthstone Private Wealth Management and also is the catalyst behind SeniorSafeAndSound.org here in San Diego, helping to prevent the financial abuse of the elderly. Michelle St. Clair, Elite Lifestyle Management, a great concierge service here in San Diego. For those of you who have no time, Elite Lifestyle Management can help with simple things like travel arrangements to much more complex things like getting the most difficult ticket to get to a Hollywood premiere, as Michelle helped Joe and I and Mary do last month for Battle of the Sexes in Westwood Village. And of course, Brenda Geiger with Geiger Law Offices. Offices, Brenda Geiger specializes in asset protection and estate planning. And for those of you who love our show so much that you skipped dinner and now your stomach's grumbling? We can help you there too, right, Joe? Absolutely. There's the Very Good Food Foundation, headed up by Michelle Ciccarelli-Lirac with all their great foodie programs
0: throughout the year. And, and uh, also, those stats coffee houses, the one in University Heights, Normal Heights, and the new one on University Avenue, all open 24-7, 365, all thriving and expanding and doing well. All right, now we're back with our guest, legendary producer, TV programmer uh, Andy Friendly. Uh, Andy, your book—I uh, I mean, it's a great memoir—and I just every page got uh, i just feel panache and and love and and uh, class. Um, but you start out in the first chapter this big falling out you had with uh, was it Roger King of King World? And yes, you never really explain what. Why did he have such a problem with you? You seem like such a nice guy. I don't get it. <laughs> Is he jealous or what? I don't know. Of course, he's passed. No.
1: No, it was it was one of those things. Uh I really the book is not a tell all and I try not to go into too much uh oh, I I think kind of t- negative territory. But right. in the course of a long career, forty years, you're gonna have your share of uh battles. And, sure. And I wanted to send a signal early on in the book that I was going to try to be honest and truthful about not just the the great wins and, and surprising victories, but mm-hmm. also some of the difficult and, and challenging parts of my life and my career. Yeah. And, and I thought that, you know, my, my leaving King world, which was the company where I was president of programming production for six years until the company was bought by CBS. And mm-hmm. then for another year I was with them. And then Viacom bought CBS. and And, and I, my, My deal was up, but Mm -hmm. the way I left was it was difficult, and it was because it's too complicated to get into in detail, but when things change at the top and mergers happen, Uh, A lot of politics comes into play, and the long knives often come out. Sure. And I had reported to Michael King, the CEO of King World, which was the company that produced and distributed many of the top programs in television. We were probably the leading television company at that time with Oprah and Wheel and Jeopardy and Hollywood Squares and Roseanne and Inside Edition and Mm -hmm. all the rest. Mm -hmm. And I was head of programming and production and development, and I had about 500 people reporting to me. And I reported to Michael King, the CEO, who founded the company with his brother, Roger, Mm -hmm. when they convinced Merv Griffin to take Wheel and Jeopardy off of NBC, where it was dying, and take it into this new business called First Run Syndication. And Merv said, who are these young up-and-coming
2: guys.
1: (laughs) His father had taught him the business when he distributed the little rascals, and Uh they were these tough New Jersey kids. But Merv, the show was going away, so for 50000 bucks, they gave Michael and Roger the rights to Wheel and Jeopardy. Oh, my God.
2: Which they
1: launched. First, they launched Wheel without New York, Chicago, and L.A. as clearances. just As you know, in syndication, you go market by market. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Wheel became a giant success and then Jeopardy the next year and then opened everything. So they got, those anyway, they got
0: those away from Merv Griffin, you're saying? he you wow. got them
1: for 50000 Oh,
0: my. I thought Merv would make – boy, he made a few boneheaded moves, but that was <laughs> – Well,
1: that was actually turned out to be a – pretty good move because Merv still owned a lot of the rights to the show, but King World had the distribution rights, ah, so okay. he, they revived yeah. the show for him, but he just gave them, he said, look, go take a shot at it. So, you are not going to lose. We're so going to be off not, the I air know, soon on, I, yeah. on the network. So what do you think the, val- anyway,
0: the value of those two asses, the Wheel of Fortune and, and um, Jeopardy?
1: Jeopardy. What billions. <laughs> I mean, they generate literally billions of dollars a year, and... And then of course Oprah came along and they oh had the insight. And they were they were two great guys and brilliant yeah. guys. And I, I got along great with both of them. But yeah. in time yeah. there is a bit of an internecine rivalry between the East Coast that Roger ran sales and, and mark and mm-hmm. and marketing and advertising and the barter business and Michael ran programming on the West Coast as CEO, Roger was chairman and when CBS bought us in 2000, at the height of the market, uh, Michael left the company, and I was uh, left to report to Roger on the East Coast. And there, without boring you to death, it was a, it was a turf war and a uh, battle between the East Coast and the West Coast guys and the yeah. sales guys versus programming, which, sadly, I've seen over the years happen. But you know what, Andy? And
0: this happens in law firms and a lot of companies, so, I mean, you know, you're know, you not exempt, but it's, it's sad to see. Obviously, you got a successful enterprise, and it just just because people don't get along.
1: But so, it was, yeah, and that happens. It happens on football teams, it happens in the boardrooms, it mm-hmm. happens in, all over the, sure, the sure. In different businesses. But, sadly, right. um, things didn't work out, and for the first time in, in my career, I was fired and uh but it was a long and uh, difficult process Mm -hmm. and i talk about it in some uh detail and candor in the book it was uncomfortable time but i i kept my cool and i hung in there which enabled me to get paid the stock options that i was owed and and my salary um they it, it was a complicated situation where well, basically they were trying to get me to leave on my own, and I just wouldn't do it. And I yeah. went through the advice of great friends and, mm-hmm. and my lawyer uh, lawyers. I was able to survive mm-hmm. and, and get, get paid off uh, with yeah. my stock options when Viacom bought the company his first CBS bought, King World and Viacom bought. So,
2: so you bought get the B S at the yeah. height of
1: the market. So I, I did yeah. well. But the, the moral right. of the story and the reason I put it at the top of the the book yeah. is that it's it's about keeping your cool under pressure and underreacting to very stressful conditions Absolutely. that can happen in this business. We're in a rough and tumble business, and there's some advice yeah. along the way throughout the book, too.
0: There
2: is. Mostly
1: to the young people in my life, my nieces, nephews, grandkids, and well, friends' it, kids about how to survive that kind well, of
0: thing. Well, you know, what? with all the bullying today, and I just saw <clears> some <throat> little short video, and it echoes a lot of what you're saying, you know, as far as keeping cool in the face of bullying. Now, of course, if they get physical. That's another situation. No one has a right to, you know, uh, assault. That's right. But uh, as far as just verbal assault, uh, there's ways to deal with that, and uh, um, you don't play on, un- you don't play into their power and and whatever. But anyway, it worked
1: you gotta out. Yeah. You got to underreact, and you got to keep your cool, and you got to show up to work every day and be professional, even when people are trying to force you out and harass you and do things. Yeah. It was an uncomfortable time, but you know i've had a a, a long good career and there're going to be those ups and downs and i Absolutely. talk about several of them in, in the Absolutely. book well, let's talk and about, i try to impart yeah. some coping and strategies to younger people reading it coming up in the business that yeah. i wish i had known at the time and uh but through the help of friends and lawyers and and a, a terrific people, I was able to, able to get through
0: it. Well, you know what? Maybe it get you on the speaking circuit and talk to some students or whatever, because uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here. And I like the part about is it Dr. Stutz you talk? You, you know, you're I guess it's a counselor, Dr.
1: I, Phil Stutz. Yeah, Stutz. I quote him a lot. He was a is a well-known LA psychologist, yeah. psychiatrist who. Let's call them personal coach.
0: To... They're personal coaches, really, right? I mean, they well, are. Yeah. They're
1: like having someone in your corner. Mm-hmm. I only saw him a couple times when I was going through this uh, crisis in my yeah. career, and it was very difficult for me to deal with. And I got to meet him, and I, I found mm-hmm. out later that lots of people have publicly talked about him, Stephen Bochko yeah. in his book and. Hank Azaria. Oh, yeah. and he's a he's a well known shrink to Good. studio heads and movie let's, stars.
0: Let's pause but, it right there, Lorraine, because we have to take a little break. We're going to come back great. with Andy Friendly with his new book, "Willing to Be Lucky," and talk more about these interesting stories in TV and production. His legendary career. Hang on. All right, we're back with Andy Friendly, legendary TV programmer and producer, son of another legendary TV uh, news figure, Fred Friendly. And uh, you can learn all about it in his book. It's will be, be released. When's the official release date? Uh, Andy? November 1st. November 1st. Willing to be lucky. And, of course, this is airing November 4th, so the book is on Amazon and a variety of places. Uh, we're going to try and get Andy down here to San Diego for book signing. We'll certainly alert everybody to that when that happens. But uh, just to wrap up, though, Dr. Stutz... Uh, Personal coach, I'm going to call him. I know he's a noted psych, psychologist, but you have a chapter in there with a lot of his resilience uh, statements, resilience statements, uh, you know, impelling resilience and whatever. And uh, those—that's important stuff, isn't it?
1: It is. I mean, I think if you're going to be in in this crazy business and or any business,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: you're going to you're going to run into you know difficult situations, and and you're going to have to learn how to in his words, underreact, and mm-hmm. you're going to have to learn how to have a, um, self-generated authority, as he mm-hmm. calls it. You, you have to have an impregnable self-image, and you have to believe in yourself, and you have to renounce bad people. Yep. You have to deal with them. You can't ignore them. You're going to have bad bosses and yep. bad quote friends and yep. family, even family members. But yep. you have to you have to understand these. Situations, and you have to be able to handle yourself with dignity and with grace, and you have to stay strong. And yeah. you really, you have to have what he calls self-generated authority. Because yeah. if you rely on uh, what others think of you, and if you depend on that kind of what he calls outer validation, yeah. you're going to be very vulnerable, and you're going its going to be very difficult for you. So, yeah. you, these are just lessons that I learned from him, and one of the smartest guys I ever met, yeah. and that I try yeah. to impart. In the book to younger people, especially reading it, and, and I think I've tried to help my yeah, yeah. my nieces and nephews and grandkids uh, understand these concepts, and and I've seen them actually work for them, and yeah. so I'm hoping, in addition to telling stories about Richard Pryor and Jimmy and Cagney and mm-hmm. John, Johnny Carson and Tom Snyder and all the great people I get to work with and my dad, trying yeah. to impart a few, uh, a few of those kind of coping skills and life strategies.
0: Still. Absolutely, absolutely, and of course, humor is a big deal too, so Gotcha. Yeah, I got a
1: whole chapter in there on my favorite <laughs> dumb jokes. Yeah. I threw everything in. You, you know? did. I just... I didn't really know where the where I was going with the book. I just started writing at the suggestion so of my friend Bob I, Hilburn, the I, great LA Times critic, who yeah. who I worked with a couple of times. We were having lunch and we were t- telling stories, and he said, "You ought to write some of this down." And I said, "I'm not a writer like you. I had I had written on the local news and the network news, and I could get the story down and across, but I was certainly no Hilburn." But yet, yeah, I started writing a couple little stories three years ago, and mm-hmm. then I suddenly had ten, and then I had twenty, and yeah. And then I put the book away, and I said, ah, this is boring, I don't know what he wants to read this crap. And then a couple of my buddies made me finish it, no, so I'm glad I did.
0: It's entertaining. I was glued to it. Of course, I was, you know, I grew up on TV like you, I mean, at nine years old, I used to sneak down and watch Johnny Carson on the little black and white TV at 10.30 in the Midwest, you know, and ooh, I couldn't be on bed, but I did anyway. And uh, Yeah, we
1: all snuck those yeah. <laughs> late night meetings didn't we, when we were kids? <laughs>
0: But it's good. There's, uh, it was there's, so
1: grown up, and it was so cool. You felt like you were, you know, really
0: yeah. hanging out
1: with a grown up. Yeah. And, well, and then t- you And had a, fun, a couple of funny jokes you could tell at school the next day by the water cooler.
0: Absolutely. Now, the, there's a great story about the Beatles, and there's uh, the Richard Pryor story. I think we almost talk about humor and, and stress under pressure and, and grace under pressure and everything. Um, huh. Let's talk about uh, Richard Pryor because that's a wonderful story.
1: Yeah, Richard well, was one of my. Idols and generally considered the the greatest stand up comic of all time. If you ask all the, the pros, if mm-hmm. you talk to
2: mm-hmm. Flatterman
1: or Billy Crystal or Bill, you know anybody Eddie Murphy, they'll all tell you Pryor is the man. And I got to meet him in 1983 and work with him on his final concert film. He had done three, and mine was the third, the one I worked on called Here and Now. Mm-hmm. And he had done live on the Sunset Strip, and of course had that terrible. Uh, drug accident where he almost lost his life yeah but we got him at a good time he was he was recovered from that and he was in a good place and my lawyer uh well at the time he wasn't my lawyer but skip Brittany, i'm the uber lawyer entertainment lawyer is considered sort of the dean of all the entertainment represented richard richard wanted to shoot on video uh he wanted it to look more like tv and then transfer it to film mm-hmm. he thought it, it fit his comedy better than shooting it on film, mm-hmm. so Skip brought my partner at the time, Bob and I, in to produce it, because we were TV producers, and and we just got along great, spent a year working with Richard, getting ready, shooting a little documentary behind the scenes as he was working at his, his routine at the Comedy Store here in L.A. and in Dallas and clubs all over the country. And we're going to go to New Orleans and shoot three nights at the historic Sanger Theater and combine it into one, edit it down into one great concert. Mm-hmm. And everything was great. Oh. And he, we got on great with him. We had heard all the horror stories that he was difficult and he could be, you know, very, he could be that tricky man. to work with. But That's we man. got on great with him for a year until the day before the actual first shoot <laughs> at the theater. Uh, everything is working great. And he was directing, and he because he wanted a certain look, and he, all the crew loved him, and everybody was happy. And he, but the day before, he shows up with this white silk pinstripe striped suit on that he had bought in a shop in New Orleans that morning, and he said, "Guys, I want to wear this, not the suit we that wardrobe had, had prepped for him, and he had agreed to, which was a, a dark green." that worked perfectly with the lighting and chroma levels for video that mm-hmm. we had worked out and planned for over six months. Anyway, we knew this was a problem because, as you know, you can't wear white on television, especially not silk and, and white with pinstripes. So he, we get up to the final rehearsal, and this suit is looks like $8 bucks, but it's strobing, the, the, the complicated term, but it's... You've mm-hmm. all seen it. You right. can't really watch the screen because right. the video is so bright and the, yeah. know, the suit is creating enormous problems with chroma yeah. levels and mm-hmm. video, and it's unwatchable. Mm-hmm. So we mm-hmm. right, nicely say to Richard, hey, it's a great suit, but we, it's not going to work. with the, We've tried everything, all the video guys who are the best in the business who do the Grammys and the Oscars. We tried the lighting. We do and Richard said, well, I, that's too bad, because I'm wearing this suit. And we said, okay, well, it's just not going to work, Richard. But we tried to reason with him. And for the first time over in a year, he became sort of the <laughs> the TV movie star monster we had heard about. And uh-huh. he was not kidding around. He was not backing down. So this is a long story, but I'll try to tell it short, okay. quickly. We. Kind of thought he was just messing with us. Uh, I would use a different word with that. Yeah. but he—he he, <laughs> he, when we tried to, you know, we just said, Richard, we've come a long way. It's a, a year of this. We're we're a night before the audience is coming in in New Orleans and three thousand people. We're all set to go. Don't do this to us. All your guys you trust, these guys are telling it's not going to work. You won't be able to. I'm wearing the suit. Your job is to fix it. So he walks storms out, and my partner Bob and I spent the entire evening talking to wardrobe people from around the world, all kinds of people advising us what we could do. Long story short, at 2 in the morning, we end up in a woman's house in in New Orleans with six cats and all these Mardi Gras beads, and (laughs) she says, well... I've done this once before. We're going to put the suit in a bathtub. We're going to fill it with hot water and put a certain kind of tea in there. And maybe it'll bring down the shine on the suit, and it'll take it from a bright white to a cream color. And it's it's, it's a one in ten chance, but this is your last effort. So we're like two dopes. Bob and I are there at four in the morning watching this going on, seeing our lives flash before us, our careers flash before us, and going, this is going to be a disaster, and we're going to be fired in the morning. We finally leave, she goes, look, just go home, get some sleep and have your guys come at nine o'clock and pick it up. So at nine o'clock, after a couple hours sleep, they knock on my door and one of our assistants is holding this shriveled, brown, mud-colored suit that is now completely wrinkled and ruined (laughs) and in tears. And she's saying, look at this, and I'm going, I told her, relax, we tried our best. We brought it to the attention of Jim Brown, our executive producer, the great football player who was Richard's partner. And Richard and Jim said, look, you did your best, don't worry about it. We didn't see Richard all day long. We were worried. Our, our careers were over at about six o'clock the night of the first filming and taping. He shows up in the limo with, with Jim Brown, our security guy, George Hewley, and he's wearing well, the original green suit. And Bob and I are standing there with Skipper. We're just holding our breath, ready to be fired. And he walks by us, and he just doesn't crack a smile. And he stares right at us. And Skipper and him, his lawyer, they're all the Columbia Studio executives were there. He stops and stares at us for about thirty seconds, and we're like shaking. <laughs> and then he finally just cracks this giant smile and goes, "You all motherfuckers done fucked up my shit." I know you can't use that, so you're going to have to put a lot of bleach there. (laughs) But anyway, the audience will remember how Richard spoke, and he just cracked up. Everyone cracked up. He wore the original suit, went out on stage, carrying the wrinkled suit, and did a whole bit about it to oh open the God. film, which, if you yeah. haven't seen, it's called Richard Pryor Here and Now, Here and 1983 now. Columbia Pictures.
0: And, of course, you've got a he, bonus check. He used check. it
1: as yeah. a great bit, yeah. and yeah. everything worked out great, and it couldn't yeah. have been nicer. Yeah, we're
0: going to do a bonus track, and, and talk about your bonus track. He gave you seventy-five grand on top of that, so that
1: worked was out great. Which pretty nice. Andy he Friendly,
0: stick guy. around for the bonus track. Go to iowamoney.com to get that, folks. The book is willing to be lucky. you got to get that to get more details on all these other great stories. Uh, thanks for being our guest. And Richard, you get your car fixed. We'll see you next uh, next week. Justin Harder Board Operator, thanks for making it sound terrific. Thanks to Craig Blankey and Dave Sniff here at KFMB for making uh, for all the help they provide. All these podcasts are commercial free on IowaMoney.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.